want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 13. My guest for today's episode is my good friend, Major Brian Park. He's an Air Force reservist, now an airline pilot. He started his career flying the T-1, instructing in undergraduate pilot training and that platform, moving on to the C-130J and then eventually the C-40 or the 737, as everyone knows it in the civilian world. Before we get into the podcast, just a few admin notes. This episode is sponsored by Hangar 24 Craft Brewing. Their main tap room is located on Redlands, California, where they brew all their beer in-house. They have additional tap rooms in Orange County, as well as Lake Havasu. I fell in love with Hangar 24 when I flew the Hangar 24 Airfest back in 2018. It's a great company that makes amazing beer. I'm excited to be a part of the Hangar 24 family. encourage you to go over and check out Hangar 24 Brewing. Dot com And if you're in the SoCal area or Lake Havasu, swing by one of their tap rooms. I'd also like to thank Squadron Posters. Again, a company that I just absolutely love. and I've been a customer of theirs for several years. They have upped the game from just making posters to share the adventure and your journey through life. I would encourage you to swing by squadronposters.com and check out their bomber style artwork. It's a really cool way to display, again, your journey. And also, they have metal nose art. So if you want something that looked like it just came off the side of a plane with whatever graphic design you want on there, they can do that. Swing over to squadronposters.com and orders over $59 or more receive a 10% discount with the discount code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, another company that I just absolutely love and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watch that's on there or you can mention my name to receive a discount on your group customization order. Mention my name to receive a discount on your group order, or if you see a watch you already love on the site, you can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off your watch purchase. And finally, I'd just like to ask if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe, leave me rating and review over on iTunes that helps the podcast out. And with that being said, let's get into the podcast. So if you just say a few words. Uh, my name is Brian. Thanks for having me today, John. Oh, it's a complete pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> 
That might be the best sound check. That absolutely, every time these get better and better, and that one, I think, thus far wins. But, Brian, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on here. Obviously, we have been around the Air Force a little bit together, started our, our aviation journey together, which now that I think about it, I mean, introduction to flight screening way back when in Pueblo, Colorado. I think it's the first time we met, and now look at us. So before we get rolling into the podcast, will you tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what you're doing today, and how you got there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me. It's a huge honor to be on this podcast, uh, listen to all the episodes, and you know, yeah. again, thanks again for having me on here. You probably um, fall, you fall asleep to them at night. Yeah, just you know, it helps me get to sleep and uh, start off the next day just well rested. No, <laughs> perfect. They're always great. Uh, yeah, so I uh, grew up, um, you know, just normal high school kid. Then ended up going into uh, college and uh, got into ROTC. Um, ultimately getting a pilot slot and then going on to, um, as you mentioned, the IFF and then a pilot training where we first met and then, uh, pilot training transitioned to T1s and then stayed there as a FAPE together. And then, uh, on the C-130Js and then flew C-40s out in Hawaii for my last assignment. And then I recently transitioned into the, uh, civilian airline world where I am now. Yeah. Rough assignment to finish the Air Force. Like Thank you for your service flying C-40s. And for those who don't know, that's a 737 DV airlift, distinguished visitor airlift, you know, uh, for the Air Force. It was tough. You're welcome. Yeah, I was, meanwhile, stationed in the middle of South Carolina, just surrounded by just nothing but awesomeness. So, again, <laughs> life's all about choices, kids. Choose, choose, choose wisely. So, uh, kind of starting from the beginning, what got you involved in aviation? What was the bug and what kicked it all off for you? Uh, so I didn't come from a military family. I didn't have, my grandfather was in the military, but he died when I was a young kid. So didn't really have any military background or kind of interest in that. But, um, I did have an aunt that was a flight attendant for an airline and, uh, she used to, you know, any layovers or long ground stops, whenever she stopped through my hometown, my parents would always take me down to the airport, um, to go see her. You know, I was always just fascinated with going to the airport and just seeing airplanes and, this was all pre TSA. So I could actually go down to the plane and she took me around. And I just remember all those memories of going down to the airplane. And, uh, you know, it's one of those where I always told my parents, like, Oh, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be a pilot. They're like, yeah, okay, kid, you know, just pat you on the head and move on. And, uh, I'm like, no, really, I'm going to do that. So I, um, I don't know. It's just kind of always been my goal. Kind of always had my heart set on it. And, um, one of those things where I knew I was going to do it, it's just figure out how to get there. So how did you figure out to get there if you didn't really have anyone around you to ask or kind of follow in their footsteps? What did you, what were some of the first steps? Uh, for me, it was, like I said, no military experience. I kind of didn't have that in mind or I didn't have anything against it. I just, it wasn't in my sights, you know, I didn't, I didn't look into it really. So I kind of always knew that I was going to go to an aviation college to go through the flight school program and, you know, talk to the parents about it and, you know, like, all right, we support you if this is what you really want to do. Um, so it was kind of always my, my end goal. And that's how I was going to get there. Really. I had no idea kind of what ratings you were going to come out with, you know, in terms of like, okay, now what, in terms of getting a job, I just knew I was going to go to this flight school. It's all through middle school, high school. I knew that's what I was going to do. Um, then I started, you know, kind of looking into it, finding the right school, Graduated high school, got enrolled in the school. Um, you start off doing, you know, gen ed or your general requirement stuff at first. Um, 
And then I end up actually staying at hometown college and my parents are like, why don't you just talk to the ROTC, kind of see what they have to offer. Um, I was like, okay. So I went, went and chatted with the local detachment there and, uh, just, you know, it sounded awesome. I was, that, the only concerning part was like, Hey, you, you come to this program and then you compete obviously with everyone else to get a pilot slot. There's no guarantee you're going to get it. So I was like, all right, well, here we go. So, uh, enjoying the ROTC local college and actually really enjoyed it. Did well, got a scholarship for the next few years. Um, and ultimately ended up getting a pilot slot out of that, thankfully. Yeah. So what, I mean, it, it sounds like kind of more or less pure happenstance that you stumbled into ROTC or decided to go that route other than pursuing just the civilian route of getting all your ratings and certificates through college and paying your way through. Was money a factor or was it just, Hey, you know what? Maybe that's like the best of both worlds. Uh, I think it was, I mean, like I said, my parents were going to support me and, you know, it was, I'm sure they saw it as like, Oh God, this is going to be expensive. Let's, uh, let's push it <laughs> this way. And, yeah. you know, honestly, I'm, I'm so thankful they did because of the, you know, the people I met, the experiences I had, the places I got to visit going all around the world. I mean, it's, I'm so thankful that they pushed me to that. And then I went that route. Um, nothing is people that go the commercial route. I mean, that's a, or the civilian route, cause that's definitely an expensive, challenging route to take. And I know tons of people and lots of good friends that went that route and, you know, they can still get to the same end goal, but it's just the, uh, like I said, just kind of the experiences I had and the people I met made it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's probably a copy and paste for most of the guys, especially in our, in around our year groups or. We've now transitioned into the reserves, but I think if we had to go back and do it again, we'd absolutely go back and join and do our time because of the experiences, the people you get to meet. It is just really unique. And not having oh, walk, question. you know, having walked the civilian route, like I'm sure it's great and there's a lot of advantageous aspects of it, such as probably living kind of where you want or moving when you want, maybe to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but if I had to go do it again, I I absolutely would. Cause it's a pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty cool to think like when you walk out of like pilot or walk out of college, you're going to go fly this multi-million dollar high performance aircraft and get paid to do it just to learn. Oh, yeah. So that kind of takes us into going to pilot training. That's where you and I were fortunate to be in the same pilot training class in the same flight. And I think we had a, a really good time because pilot training, I think a lot of people say it's like the, like one of the worst years of their lives. I really enjoyed it. And I think it really came down to the people. Like we had a great group in our flight. Oh, without question. We do our year in pilot training. Then you and I, I think we're so beloved. We were both kept back for three years <laughs> yeah. uh, to teach as first assignment instructor pilots. So can you walk me through being a T1 instructor pilot and what that kind of looked like day in and day out and thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, as you know, you, you graduate pilot training, you're all excited and you, you go down to a pilot instructor training in San Antonio for a few months where they teach you how to, you already kind of know how to fly the plane, but now they teach you how to be an instructor in that aircraft. So then you come back to uh, your base first day on the job as a new instructor and they strap you with these uh, two students and off you go. And you're like, Oh gosh, these people are my age, if not older. And here I am instructing them on this airplane. On the flip side of that, it's pretty cool that it's like, here I am, you know, mid twenties and I'm, you know, and flying this airplane, teaching these other other students how to fly this plane, and I don't know, 
definitely an eye-opening experience in the beginning. Learn a lot. Sometimes by accident. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a lot. That's but, a that's a lot learn. of it. Yeah, as long as you can walk away, you didn't bend metal. You know, like it's all it's all it's all a win. The yeah. I think that's kind of like the one aspect of being a fake that was like the coolest for me was the fact that in the end you have this student who's a year younger than you, maybe they're older than you, but again, you have this multi-million dollar aircraft and the air force just throws you the keys and expects you to go out there and train, teach and take this plane from point A to point B, maybe point A to point A and do it safely. And it's probably hard to find that in the civilian world. It's just my guess. I don't know. That might not be fair. Yeah. I mean, it's, and we're doing that, you know, we get paid to do it and it's, I don't know. Yeah. It was definitely a, a great experience. The, the FAPE tour for you culminated in going on to the C-130J. So C-130J, the newest C-130 model, right. That we have in the air force talking a little bit about that. What was the C-130 training like? And is there a difference really between, I mean, the C-130J and what, the other models we have out there? Yeah. So the, I mean, the J model, like you mentioned, is the, the newest C-130 model. It's uh, just more advanced avionics, HUD, um, flat screens versus analog gauges. I didn't really fly the, the older models. So I don't know a whole lot about the differences, but um, in terms of the training, it's about six months and you go through the entire initial and mission call together. So you come out, of the training, knowing how to fly the plane, but also left seat, right seat, airdrop, air land, MVG, all the all the fun that goes into 130, you come out of the training, basically signed off to do it. Obviously you go, you know, back to your squadron and you kind of get refresher training and you got to do some stuff, some additional training before you're kind of qualified to go do it. But um, in the end, you your entire training covers all that. I thought if I was going to go fly something that was larger than an F-16, Flying a C-130 would be pretty cool just because of all the different mission sets the C-130 has. And I know I was in a place that uh, remained unnamed, but there were a lot of guys who just wore plaid short sleeve button-down shirts and like khaki pants um, <laughs> and beards. It's funny how they all they all picked that outfit. But the also there were two C-130 crews supporting them in various different spots. What I found fascinating was these guys were landing – you know, I don't know, C-130J, 165,000 pound, might be like a heavyweight. I might be completely missing that. But they're doing these heavyweight yeah, heavyweight assault landings in the middle of the night on these like 4,000 foot unprepared strips uh, that are unlit and just have IR markers for like a landing zone that they're using MVGs. So like to me, that yep. is just like mind boggling that a plane that big can go into the middle of the jungle to the desert, wherever it might be and just land without ever really seeing anything. Yeah. I think uh, when you go through training, you, you know, it's, you get trained on it. It's awesome when you're doing it, you're, you're kind of in the moments, so you don't kind of grasp the reality of what's really how big of a deal it is. And then after you land in the middle of nowhere with zero lights on, and then you look back and you're like, Holy crap, we just did that. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> I'm getting paid to go do this. That seems really sporty. And you're getting an extra like $3 and 15 cents a day too. So, you know, oh, yeah, can't forget about that. <laughs> definitely worth it. The, you know, my dad, he was a contractor in Afghanistan and 
his base would be resupplied by C-130. So, yeah, for him not being a pilot, it was always entertaining to hear his stories when they go out there and wait for the 130 to come in. And, you know, it's, it would be the story of like, I mean, it's again, just a gravel slash dirt strip out in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, they'd have Afghan like goat herders walking on it and having to have the C-130 do like a low pass and they're going to chase them off. Like just mind boggling yeah. that we're putting like, you know, this is multi-million dollar aircraft and we're putting it down in these austere locations and we could do it like repeatedly, repeatedly and safely. Oh yeah. That, that's probably my, some of my most fun experiences I can remember flying the 130 or, you know, flights like that landing on these blacked out runways or dirt strips and, you know, having to tell people even in the back of the back of the plane, Hey, make sure all your phones are off. Computers are closed. You know, all that. We can't have any lights, you know, no, no lights on the plane. And then, you know, once you, again, you land, you're like, golly we just landed in pitch black like the guy on the ground did not even see us until we basically pulled up right to him how does that i mean what does it take how does that happen you know for you to be able to go yeah (laughs) that's what i figured okay next question (laughs) that's what i figured uh because to me it definitely seems like seems like pfm so uh (laughs) yeah people get urban dictionary that but how how does that how does that happen right when you're going to go into one of these fields what kind of coordination does it take in order to have everything on the ground in the right spot? Who are you dealing with? And how, like, how does that go from point A to point B? Oh, geez. Um, I know there's a lot of people behind the scenes, you know, not just kind of the, the people flying the plane, but a lot of people put all the coordination into, into play. You know, I'm just kind of moving the, the piece of the puzzle, but the people behind the scenes are making sure that, you know, the equipment's loaded where I am. And the coordination to where I'm going has taken place. And then they kind of pass along all the info of like, all right, here's what to look for. Here's who to talk to. Here's, you know, here's how they're going to clear your land. You know, all these kinds of uh, things. Definitely not by no means of my own. Am I putting all this together? But, uh, you know, like I said, a great, great team of people that put all that, all that part together. Yeah. I mean, I think we said to like an F-16 sortie, like you probably have about 750 people standing behind the jet more or less to like make it happen. So it definitely is a team effort when it comes to that. And then when you're flying into these places, like if it's blacked out, you've had some coordination on the ground, right? They're going to put out some markers, but no kidding. You're just relying on night vision goggles to see the landing zone and touch down. Cause we couldn't land with MVGs and F-16. Like you had to take them off five minutes prior to allow your, your vision to adjust. Oh no, we landed. Yeah, it's uh, we land with them on, and it's uh, it's definitely an acquired different vision, you yeah. know, wearing them and actually flying an airplane. But uh, yeah. Does the C one thirty? So now, have, now that I've flown a bigger plane like the triple seven, when it comes to landing it, we're really reliant upon the radar altimeter calling out fifty, forty, thirty, twenty to kind of adjust your flare rate. I would imagine yep. C-130J too is it a similar call out. Are you guys using that for the oh, flare yeah. rate as far as if you're sinking too fast or? <laughs> yeah. How quickly are the numbers happening? Yeah. I, I remember yeah. actually completely unrelated, but uh, my sim partner going through, he was a CV-22 guy. And I mean, again, we've landed the sim a few times, but I remember hearing 
he was working on his flare. And it was just no kidding, 50, 40, 30, 20. And you just kind of like, <laughs> just even though it's not a plane, like your shoulders tense, everything tenses up. Like we hit the simulator broke, like they had to get maintenance out there. It was a hard impact, but having that kind of stuff yeah. and those tools definitely make it possible to go out there and do some of the stuff that beforehand would have been impossible to do, I think. Yeah, I think that's also another reason why the, the initial training is longer than most other, you know, MWS cargo airplanes. But they spend a lot of time on that type of training so that when you do get to the flight line, you're actually flying the plane. You don't have those 50-30 or 50-40-30s. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, know you, you, you have a more of a understanding of it so that when you actually get to the airplane. And I think people too, and again, you can elaborate on this, talking to those crews when I was deployed, they're always operating at a very like thin margin between either overspeeding the flaps or stalling the airplane when it came to doing like heavyweight airdrops. It really had to oh, be yeah. so slow in order, I guess, to support the pallet going out so it wasn't disrupted and completely destroyed and then yep. required the flaps to be down. So were there a lot of situations or, I mean, is that a pretty common thing to find yourself in the, in the 130 where you're always kind of operating right there on the margins and what does that take in order to be successful? Yeah, for sure. I can't, um, I can't remember the actual flap setting, but one of the, one of the final flap settings is like really close to what the normal approach speed would be for, for around that, you know, weight that we typically fly at. So oftentimes there were, you know, some flap over speeds that I would say that that probably was not uncommon to have those, you know, it's kind of like the plane was built to operate right, <laughs> right at the max. So a lot of the limits that were built were, Oftentimes you found yourself flying, you know, in those parameters, but, um, again, very safe, capable airplane, as long as you operate it and flew it, you know, the way it was designed to do. Yeah. Just, uh, and again, now I have a, a little bit more of appreciation for that. You know, in F-16, you put the gear up, the flaps come up, right? Flapper ons. And then if it gets slow, the jet is doing the things it needs to do to not fall out of the sky to include the right. leading edge and the trailing edge. Um, and so now flying bigger planes and taking off really heavy and realizing that you might have to leave the flaps down longer in order to get to altitude and things like that is a, it's a relatively new concept for me that I'm learning. And now that I can fully appreciate the hardships <laughs> you went through. So thank thank you again for your service, <laughs> which kind of lends to your next assignment. I would say, I know it was really busy, so I do make jokes about this but a hardship tour to Hickam Air Force Base in Hawaii flying C-40s, which is the Air Force's 737. So can you tell me a little bit about what that job was, what that mission encompassed flying the C-40? So first off, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> it was it was a tough tour. Uh, I'd say for that, it was... I, I owe totally my leadership for that assignment because it was, it was all about me expressing to them what what my ultimate goal and what I was trying to do, what I wanted to go fly. And just them knowing that that's what I wanted to go do is ultimately how I ended up, you know, getting that assignment. So uh, it's definitely good to have those talks with your leadership about what, what you really want versus what they think you want. So um, secondly, the, yeah, the, the C-40, it's a 737 BBJ, the Boeing business jet. Um, ultimately designed just to move senior military civilian leaders really anywhere in the world. Um, designed to kind of have the comfort as well as the, communication piece so that they essentially it's like a day in the office for them that they're they're fully connected to the the world like they would be you know on the ground and still be able to go from point a to point b 
and do whatever whatever worldwide diplomatic mission they need to do. With that, how many countries? Do you know how many countries you travel to while you're? It was a three year assignment that you did, right? Oh, dude, yeah, three years, and I definitely have to count. But we went to a lot. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every time I was talking to you, you were in some random country that maybe I just had to Google or figure out. There were quite a few trips that came on the board. I'm like, I honestly have no idea where that is. I've (laughs) got to Google map that one. (laughs) So when it came to those type missions, again, now I think I have an appreciation flying bigger planes, just the amount of like coordination that goes into diplomatic clearances, overflight clearances, things like that. How much of that planning did you have to do or did you coordinate with, or how did you coordinate with make sure that you could go from Hawaii to wherever you needed to go and do the right things oh, at yeah. right times? So we, we also had a, you know, an awesome team that worked behind the scenes, kind of initially building the missions. You know, once the, once the party says that we need to be at this place at this time, then it goes to the team to kind of build the, the mission overall to kind of determine okay the times you need to be here at this time or what time do you need to leave um fuel kind of like all the arrangements behind the scene and then it kind of drops to us as the air crew to kind of put it all together so now we know where we're going and the dates we're going now we kind of work with our planners to you know ultimately work on the logistics for the hotels and transportation how we're going to get to and from the plane to the hotel um customs you know and that's kind of the ultimate destination, but there were oftentimes we had to stop at other countries on the way for gas or whatever crew rest. So then you're having to work those pieces as well. Um, you got to work with the rest of the crew to see what their needs are to see, Hey, when we stop here, do you need anything? Do you need any extra ice? Do you need that? Um, and then up to the mission, you're constantly working with the planners to make sure we didn't miss something like a runway closure or quiet hours or just something that would prevent us from getting there. Because the last thing you want is to fly halfway around the world and then get there and realize, oh, this runway's closed and we missed that. Or, you know, so I'd say a lot more planning on this piece just to kind of make sure that, you know, nothing's really missed. And with that, how big of a crew complement would you typically have? I know it probably depend on who was on the plane and what, what the mission was, but at least a couple of pilots, right, for relief and then communications, stuff like that. Yeah, so couple pilots minimum was a couple pilots we had uh, flight attendants some communication uh, people that took care of all the the calm you know on the ground as well as in flight and we flew some uh, crew chiefs that kind of took care of some of the minor maintenance on the ground sometimes heavy maintenance as well depending on what happened where we were um, and then just kind of oversee the you know the plane as we're on the trip and then sometimes we would take some security security team with us for if we went to a certain location that just kind of guarded the plane overnight or while we weren't there. I had uh, Shiv, who is the current A-10 demo pilot on the podcast in an early episode, but he was prior enlisted and did the uh, Open Skies Treaty as a Russian linguist. And mm-hmm. so he was telling me times where the Russians would break or they would like hard break an aircraft like in you know the U.S. or Russia, respectively, and just the logistics that would go into getting parts and pieces and the right like mechanics to there. Did you guys ever have like a hard break or something where you had to fly mechanics or parts in? Oh yeah. Um, not as often. I mean, the team definitely took care of the plane. Um, so, so we didn't oftentimes run into like 
we had maintenance issues, but they're also, it's kind of like a high vis airplane, depending on where you are. It's kind of, they, they go out of their way to make sure the part gets there, you know, in time. Yeah. Sometimes we might be stateside at a base that may, that plane may also be stationed there or maybe a lot easier to get a part. Um, but the, and the crew chiefs, tons of respect for them for the amount of work they do, especially when we're on the ground and they break and, you know, crew rest rules are totally different for <laughs> maintainers and pilots. Yep. And yep. Um, I had several trips where it's just, all right, y'all are staying out here at the plane. Let me know if you need anything or keep me updated. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, Bye. Ma- yeah, the maintainers, I mean, that's what makes our air force the best in the world. And I definitely saw that on demo. I, you know, it's like the worst feeling in the world. You break something and either you have other things you have to go get done, right. To make the mission happen. You can try to show solidarity, which you're usually in the way, but yeah, pilot crew rest is different. And I just like hats off to like the maintainers because those guys and gals make it happen. And they put in some long hours sometimes to, Oh yeah, for sure. For you to go out there and break the plane again. (laughs) <laughs> it's the worst feeling in the world. Like my bad. I, I actually had one it was right in the beginning of demo. Like I broke, I hard broke three jets in a row weekend after weekend. Right. And you're just leaving them across the country and it just becomes this huge logistics nightmare for them. Um, and I landed at the fourth show and I was like, the jet's good. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I hop out and they're like, nope. Like it, a panel had delaminated and dug into the side of the fuselage. Like, you're just like, oh, I'm sorry, guys. And I've never, like, that was one where there was, like, 80 screws, Phillips head screws that were epoxied. And they had oh, to dude. carve out the Phillips head with a razor blade, like, 80 of these screws. And you're just like, well, I feel kind of terrible right now. <laughs> but Way to build that friendship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just enhancing relations. No big deal. But no, those guys definitely, again, yeah, guys and gals definitely make it happen, which is pretty awesome to have them on our yeah. side. Were they contract maintenance or uh, Air Force? Nope, ma- they were, uh, yep, Air, enlisted Air Force maintenance. Um, none of the, the entire career was all Air Force um, individuals, no contracts. We had contract maintenance that took care of it kind of on the ground when it was back home. Yeah. But in flight, it was a 100% Air Force crew. And we, we talked a lot about the maintainers, but the, the flight tenants and the comp technicians as well. I mean, it's, we all had to work together all the time to, to make sure the entire mission of getting, you know, individuals from A to B yep. took, you know, happen flawlessly was the ultimate goal. That platform, you guys were just a modgepodge of different backgrounds, right? Because you're a C-130 guy, but there are pilots that are coming from other communities such as the C-5, C-17, some might stay in it depending on the career path and others might go back to their respective airframe. Is that how the entire crew force was built? Yeah. So pretty much everyone on that airplane, you know, every crew position was on a previous platform at some point, um, especially yeah, the pilots, va- various aircraft uh, experience. You know, like I said, I was a T1 FAPE, then 130s and then the C40. And you may have someone else that flew C17s for their entire time or um, just, just various experiences and backgrounds which made it awesome because you could kind of everyone kind of brought something to to the table in terms of what experiences they've had before and what you know what they've learned where they've been 130 i didn't really travel a whole lot um i did a lot of stateside exercises and deployments but i didn't really travel the world like c17 kc10 people did so being you 
on a crew with somebody that flew C-17s, they very well have been to these countries before. So it's helpful to have, you know, them and that experience as well so that the entire crew is not brand new going into this random place. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's kind of what's the big strength of doing some of these things where you are cross-pollinating from different platforms. Everyone comes with different streaks and weaknesses. And if you do it right, you can play off it to make it more effective. So uh, wrapping up your C-40 time, you decide to transition out of active duty Air Force into the reserves. Also, you start working at a major airline. So what was that process like getting out? Was it painful? I know you and I have talked offline, <laughs> but it was really painful. Spoiler alert. No. What was, yeah. What was the transition like a year, a, you know, a little, yeah, I guess about a year now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, any regrets or anything? Uh, I mean, no regrets. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was, it was definitely a painful process. I mean, it's, you know, you've spent your entire career the past 12 years embedded this organization to to transition so there's tons of change and lots of boxes to check people to see forms to fill out in order to out, you know out process and especially when you're out in the middle of the pacific ocean trying to move your household goods somewhere and they're like oh what address do you want to send to i'm like i have no idea we don't even know where we're moving to <laughs> um you know i guess just third in storage in california just can you just get it across the ocean that's all i'm asking you know <laughs> let's let's cut the uh the long long part out of it but yeah, it was a tough transition for sure and tons of change. No regrets. I mean, I definitely miss, you know, the peop the, the daily you know, interaction with people. Um, even even the bad days, you're like, ah, oh, these people are getting on my nerves. Like you kinda I don't know, I kinda miss those. Um my wife will not say well, <laughs> she definitely misses Hawaii. I guess we'll say that. We yeah. are uh, fair enough. she she every day. Like, oh, look at this picture. We were here this time last year. <laughs> she missed it for sure. <laughs> we'll go back one day, though. Yeah. Vacation, right? Yeah. That, um, you know, you talk about all the stuff you have to do to get out of the Air Force. And obviously, I did it as well, running around, like the virtual checklist, right, which nothing ever gets checked off by the agencies they need to do virtually, so you have to call. It's just all this extra work. Um, and I remember... I got a few stories, but needless to say, once I got to the point where the checklist was complete and then I was my last day at Shaw, I had to turn it in Monday morning and I was driving off and that was going to be it. I go to turn it in and the person to turn it into is not there. And like, well, this is the only person I'm like, well, I'm, I'm leaving. So like, can I just hand it to you? And you also be in the local area for a few more hours. So if there's something they need, I'll, I'll come back, but I think it's good to go. So I turn it in. And that was it. Like, it's just so anticlimactic. You're like, this is the last 12 years of my, you know, my, my life. And it's oh, literally yeah. just turning a piece, you know, or like five pieces of paper. That's, this is it. And okay. See you later. Like, All right. See you later. It's been fun. It's been real. I'm out. Yeah. The checklist for sure. I mean, it's like, I mean, which I know there's a lot of organizations you got to check off, but some of the, it kind of audit populates for everybody. And it's like, please go visit this office. I'm like, I've never even been there, but I've got to go get out process. I got to find the thing first, figure out what they even do to tell me I'm good to go. Right. Um, turn it yeah, into you library your... books. And you're like, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know we had a library on base. Yeah. And then you go out process and it's like, it kind of, to the person on the other side of the counter, it's just their daily job. But for you know me, I walk in, I'm like, oh, this is like my last like thing ever. Like, really? All right. Yeah. Is there a cake? Is there a celebration? When's like the confetti <laughs> yeah. cannons going off? 
yeah, it's kind of wild. Just like, and that was it. And then I think, you know, transition to the reserves or there's definitely a lot of like room for improvement, at least from, from what I saw being that, you know, the air force reserves, air national guard and the air force are all tied to the hip and fall under essentially the same organization, but it's quite a process to get all your paperwork and into the system. I mean, it was a process I started in January and I got my welcome letter to the reserves in December. So how are we doing? Um, and it's one thing again, now being a part of it, like the organization, you just want to make it better and improve it. And hopefully that's what it does because it is such a great thing. I think, and again, if I could go back and do my time in active duty, I would do it again. Um, and then, oh, yeah, for sure. Just try to make it, make it better the next time around, I guess. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything you want to say to the listeners, any advice? Because again, there are a lot of uh, people listening who are aspiring to go fly civilian or military route. But, you know, if you can put yourself back in 17 year old Brian shoes or 15 year old Brian shoes, what would you say to them? whether it be going to pursue a career in aviation or really just pursuing a passion and being, I would say the best of that, that passion, whatever it is. I, yeah, I think, um, like I said, when I, I knew from a kid, like this is what I wanted to do. And again, my, you know, I just kind of pictured my parents, like just patting me on the head, like not really listening, but kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. If you want to do this, great. And then like thinking I'm going to go do something else, but I'm like, no, really, this is what I'm going to do. And you know, you got to be smart, right? <laughs> oh wait you gotta be smart at this but i mean ultimately i think like i'm definitely no no smart kid and um you know to anyone listening that thinks that like oh i'll never be able to do that yeah right um like i say you put us back in pilot training and it's it was definitely a tough year but it was also one of the most fun years but i think ultimately it's just because of you know just the drive and determination and everyone and kind of like the teamwork it took to get everyone to the end not not so much like everyone's so smart or everyone's like a genius in math and science but it was it's more so just the will and determination of each person in there you know to accomplish whether it's flying or anything i mean it's if you're determined and you want to do it then go do it but you know don't let someone tell you that you can't do it or don't let one failure make you think it's the end of the road um (laughs) had tons of failures in pilot training and kind of just all the different trainings, you know, every, every time I had a new assignment, I had a new airplane, which meant new initial call, you know, so yeah, messed up all kinds of stuff every single time, but it's, you know, as long as you have that will and determination and drive to keep going forward and to actually get to your end goal, whatever it is, it doesn't even have to be flying related. Um, you know, just don't let anything stand in your way of doing whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. I think that's straight to the point because anything you want to do that's worth pursuing is, going to come with hurdles and going to come with setbacks and challenges and you have to be willing to push through in order to get to a, the end state the desired end yeah. state well i mean i never imagined that you know 15 or 17 year old brian being like you know put me in those shoes and then now looking back at what all i've done i would have never told you at 15 or 17 years i would have done all that because like i said i i kind of envisioned the civilian route and just kind of aviation school and then didn't, and then commercial airline. That's kind of all the sites that I had really was, I knew I wanted to fly commercial and I'm going to go to an aviation school and get there. Now I look back, I'm like, holy cow, like 
<laughs> the places I've been, the people I've met, you know, just incredible. I mean, just, you know, like it would have never happened without just kind of that drive or want really. Yeah. It's not just going to come freely and it's not just going to land in your lap. So you have to get out there and get it. Yep. Well, Brian, I really appreciate you taking the time today to share your story, a little bit about your path through aviation up to this point. It's going to be awesome to see what's next for you and how you keep growing. And then obviously sharing uh, our friendship memories as we kind of press forward and into the next chapter of our lives, which is kind of cool. So thanks again. For for sure, ta- yeah, Thanks again for taking the time today. No, thanks. For, thanks for having me to, to talk about the heavy, heavy world. <laughs> hey, I fly big old planes now too. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks again, John. Yeah, absolutely. See you, bud. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out. Until next time, don't bring a week.